Uh, well, we're in the third week of our series in the, the short letter of Jude. And, and as we've been saying in this series, uh, the heartbeat of this letter, everything that drives this letter is this. Contend for the faith that was once delivered. Contend for the faith amid the pressures that we face in our day-to-day lives, the pressures that push down against our faith and say, make us ask, is faith really worth it? And part of this contention is actually contending for who the gospel says that we are. In relation to God, are we ungodly? In other words, are we not God-like? Do we live for ourselves? Or in relation to God, are we beloved? Have we put our faith and trust in Jesus and received that identity from him? But so far in Jude's letter, we've looked mostly at the ungodly. Is this it? Is our contention simply against other people? Is that what the Christian message is all about? Goodness, no. Uh, Jude isn't advocating a us versus them sort of reality. And just as we don't define who we are in relation to God, uh, or relation to others, but in relation to God. We don't define how we live in relation to others, but in relation to God. So if you're a part of the beloved, you don't find that out by looking to the ungodly. You find it out by looking to God. And how to live as the beloved, you don't find that out solely by looking to the practices and ways of the ungodly. You do that by looking to Christ and seeing how he calls us to live. Uh, This week then, we, we actually get to start sketching out the picture of the life of the beloved. We get to fill that in, and it's a beautiful picture. Uh, The life of the beloved is a life with the beloved and a life for the sake of others. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 20 through 23, and I just want to look at three things. Life with the beloved, life for the sake of others, and life with Christ. So open your Bibles with me to Jude, starting in verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. There's a principle behind everything that Jude says here. Our faith is personal, but it is never private. Our faith is personal, but it is never private. When we read these commands, though, When we hear, build yourselves up in your faith, keep uh, yourselves in the love of God, we automatically hear it through our hyper-individualistic lens. We automatically think, I need to build myself up in my faith. No, I need to keep myself in the love of God. And yes, we need to develop practices in our lives that help our our faith flourish in our day-to-day lives, in our personal lives. Practices like carving out time to be with God and His Word and praying and other disciplines. But this is hardly the sum of what it means to be a Christian. Jude isn't writing a bunch of instructions for a group of individuals to keep on their own who just happen to self-identify as Christians. The Christian life is a shared life with a family. Everyone in this room, if you believe in Jesus, these are your brothers, these are your sisters. Hence, Jude gives us each other instructions. What Jude is actually saying is, build each other up in your faith. Keep each other in the love of God. Or if you imagine uh, this letter like I do in Roger's Southern Drawl, keep y'all in y'all faith. You know, it's, 
It's this sort of collective command. You're welcome, Roger. <laughs> life is the beloved is a life with the beloved. See, nowhere in Scripture do we see anyone advocating for a Jesus plus me alone sort of Christian life. It's just not in the Scriptures because we cannot fully know Jesus outside of his body, outside of his people, the people that he calls, the people that make up his family. And this is why we see community groups as the backbone of everything we do at St. Peter's. If you want to fully experience St. Peter's, it's not going to happen by coming to our Sunday love feasts. It's catching on. Uh, It's going to happen by committing to this community, by committing to a handful of the people in this room and doing life with them. By being intentional and giving your time and your effort and your love and making space in your life. To be vulnerable with others and say, these are the pressures that I face in my day to life. This is how I'm struggling. This is where I don't think I'm going to make it. And to have people in your life who look at you and just say, I'm with you. I'm beside you. Or sometimes just me too. You see, if we're going to contend for our faith, it has to be in the midst of the community where faith takes place. Look at verse 20 again. Jude writes, but you, beloved building each other up in your most holy faith. When we contend for our faith, it's not just that our faith might barely survive in the pressures we face. Contending for our faith means seeing that our faith and the community's faith is built up, that it's growing. Uh, Jude uses construction language here. It's brick and mortar language. It's the language of building. And it's, it's language used all throughout the New Testament to describe building up our faith. Consider what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.10. Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. As the beloved, our foundation is, is laid. We have our eyes fixed on Jesus. We have our hearts set on Jesus. We've put our faith and trust in him, and he is the foundation of our life and the foundation of our community, and so he defines who we are and how we live. But we're called to build upon that foundation. Jude calls us and invites us to participate in the growth of our faith. Not just our faith, but our most holy faith. It's a very rare description of faith in Scripture. Think about that, our most holy faith. Our faith in Jesus should be our number one priority and concern. When you wake in the morning, your greatest concern should be, can I convince Bob Holding to cook me an English breakfast? And then, how am I going to grow my faith today? If you don't know Bob, you should. He makes a great breakfast. But our faith, It should take precedent in all areas of our lives. Our greatest concern in our day-to-day lives should be, how am I growing my faith? How am I providing structures in my life so that my faith might flourish? But is this the case? Is this the case? Is your faith your most valuable asset? Is nourishing your faith your greatest concern when you wake up? Does your daily disciplines and, and weekly schedule and relationships reflect this? Do you know what a good sign is? When life gets busy, when you're stressed, maybe when exams come, what's the first thing that goes? Is it small group? Is it uh, coming to our our service? 
Is it spending time with the people that you need to spend time with? That's always going to be uh, a way of demonstrating where your heart lies and how important your faith truly is to you. And Jude is clear. Our faith, it's not just a passive thing. It's an active thing. Uh, it's not just an intellectual exercise. Uh, for example, you could buy a ton of books on nutrition and eating and exercise, and you could get the degree and a master's and a PhD, and, and you might know everything there is about caring for the body. And you might be even able to impact other people's lives with the knowledge you have about nutrition in the body. You might say things like, uh, if you want to run, wear shoes. Or, uh, you know, don't eat potato chips out of the bag. Uh, obviously, I exude nutritional wisdom that's on the house. But um, <laughs> unless you live in light of what you know, you will not benefit from it. You can know everything there is about Jesus. But if you do not live in light of what you know about Jesus, you will not benefit from it. Faith is living actively in response to who Jesus is. It's implementing the things he asks us to do. It's actually doing them, which means we contend for practices uh, that help our faith grow and mature and become strong. And the major piece to this, I've said it already, and I'm going to keep saying it through this sermon, is that you need a community of faith. You need to meaningfully engage within that community of faith. But what does that look like practically? Because we can talk about it in theory, but what should the beloved do together when they gather? Look at verses uh, 20 through 21. But you, beloved, building each other up in your most holy faith, Praying in the Holy Spirit, keep each other in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Jude, he's just providing a sketch of what the beloved should do together, but it is a focused sketch. And the first thing he says in verse 20 is, the beloved should be praying in the Holy Spirit. Jim Houston, uh, former president of Regent College, he said this about prayer. If you want to make a Christian feel guilty, ask them what their prayer life is like. Isn't that true? Like when someone asks you, how's your prayer life going? Like, don't you just want to curl up under a rock or take that rock and smack them with it? I mean, and then it's just an indicative of how much you need to pray. You know, like more often than not, when I'm meeting with people about their walk with Jesus, about their spiritual lives, this is a common thread. I'm just not praying. I don't know how to pray. I can't seem to pray more. And yet Jude is saying that as a community, we can't expect to be built up in our faith without a strong foundation of prayer. And Jude, he says, we don't need to just be praying. We need to be praying in the Holy Spirit. What does that even mean? Uh, the early church, they would stretch what we consider to be normal today um, they weren't Anglicans. I'm sorry to disappoint. I know some of you now are saying, like, thanks be to God. But, uh, so when Jude instructs them to pray, you have to understand, in the early church, they had far more charismatic experiences. Uh, so Jude, he, he might have in mind practices like speaking in tongues. It's a perfectly fine and good gift from God. I pray in tongues. Mike doesn't. Mike sings like an angel. I can't sing like an angel. Neither have any bearing on our relationship with God. Tongues is a good thing to seek God for, but it is not an ultimate thing. And I don't think we should mishear Jude. I don't think Jude has this practice in mind, uh, despite how much um, certain charismatic scholars point to this passage for it. When he says, pray in the Holy Spirit, it's a, 
this qualifier reminds us that there's so much more to prayer than just saying words. Because we're not praying at God, we're praying with God. We're praying in the Holy Spirit, not at the Holy Spirit. We're participating actively in our relationship with the third person of the Trinity, with the living Spirit of God who dwells mysteriously in us. And so praying in the Spirit can be a lot more primitive than beautiful, formalized prayers. Paul writes in Romans 8.26 that uh, we do not know how to pray um, as we ought but that the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Learning how to pray with God instead of at God is the discovery that God knows you better than you know yourself. He knows what your sighs and your groans and your tears mean. And not only that, he knows how to best respond to them. So in prayer, there's room to talk. There's there's room for formalized prayer. There's room to make requests. But there's also room to be silent and quiet and to listen. There's room to have no words but to be in God's presence and just sigh and groan or to cry with God. There's room in the Christian life for the quick, help me, help me, help me, Jesus prayer before you go into a meeting and the thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus prayer after the meeting. But there's no formula because we don't know how to pray as we ought. But when we pray in the Holy Spirit, it's simply the act of joining God in what he is already doing in and through us. That the Holy Spirit already is interceding and praying in and through us. And so when we focus ourselves to pray, it's to that end. And prayer becomes significantly less difficult when you see it this way. And praying in the Spirit, it has a goal. Yes, it's to be present with God, but it's also so that we can deepen in our experience of his profound love. Paul writes again in Romans 5.5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Jude, he's calling the community to pray in the Holy Spirit so they might be more fully um, living in their identity as the beloved, but more so that they can experience experience belovedness. He doesn't want them to just know they're beloved. He wants them to experience the love of God in their minds and in their hearts and in their day-to-day realities. Which leads us to his next instruction. Look at verse 21. Keep each other in the love of God. We need to cultivate, cultivate prayer lives that deepen our own experience of the love of God so that we can keep each other in the love of God. This is our aim as a community, to be kept in the love of God, because all too often, we forget about it. We might know it, but we don't experience it. So how do we do this? Jesus says, John 15, 19 through 22, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Jesus says that we remain in God's love, this profound, eternal love, 
as we keep his commands. And the command he gives his community is this. Love one another as I have loved you. In addition to praying then, to be kept in the love of God, we need a community that enacts the love of Jesus, not the love of the world. And often we conflate these two ideas. You see, we have cultural pressures that say we need to be tolerant and we need to be accepting of all people and we can't point out any flaws in their lives. And at times, sure, that can be loving. But more often than not, it's not. True love seeks the well-being of others by laying down oneself for their sake. True love recognizes that it's actually unloving at a point to let someone self-destruct in the name of tolerance and acceptance. True love is only seen, according to the scriptures, in the love of Christ. Because in him we see how the Father loves us. It's a love that's self-giving. It's a love that's generous. It's a love that endures, and yet it is a love that speaks truth and challenges and identifies sin and yet offers mercy and grace. If we're going to help keep each other in the love of God as a community here, then it means learning how Jesus loved and trying to love one another in the same way. And this takes intentionality. You could be in a relationship, uh, you might just have some friends, or it might be your marriage, you know. Uh, but you know the difference between inviting some people to watch Netflix or to actually, like, connect, right? Like, uh, Julia and I, I hate to admit this, but we've watched 16 episodes or 16 seasons of Law and Order in two years. You know, like, Netflix, it just has this feature where it just goes to the next episode, and you look at each other and you're like, well, why not? You know, and some of you might have learned after three episodes, it pops up 10 minutes into the show and said, are you sure you want to do this? You've been here for a while. Um, and it's just easier to do that. You know, it's easier just to lounge and watch some shows and just be present with one another, but not really talk. And don't get me wrong, there's space for that. But it doesn't cultivate love, per se. Every time I come home, Julie asks me, how is your day? And I just being honest, I never want to tell her, and I don't know why. It's just so much work to recount my day and be like, yeah, this is what I did. I paid some bills. I met with some people. I wrote a sermon. Same thing I did last Tuesday, you know? But I push past that because I love Julia, and I know that growing in our love takes intentionality. And when we sit down and we share the mundane details of our day and we, we talk back and forth, we connect in a meaningful way. You have to meaningfully engage and participate in the community of the beloved. You can't just put on autopilot and show up to the service and leave as if you consumed some goods. You can't just go to the small group and just show up. You have to meaningfully engage and participate. It takes intentionality. And I get this. It's hard because people are broken. And it can be scary because people are broken. But the love of Jesus shows us this, that true love says, I've seen your ugly side, and I'm staying. We neither excuse our imperfections, but we don't condemn them either. Instead, we seek to love one another into the people that God has called us to be. 
But when we do this, we shouldn't be surprised if the love of God becomes more palpable in our own lives. Because God has given us the family of the church so that we might more fully come to understand how profound his love is for us. Then Jude says in verse 22, We pray in the Spirit, we keep each other in the love of God while waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus that leads to eternal life. Waiting is actually the only verb in this, this section of Jude. Um, praying and keeping their participles, I'm sure all of you are wondering. It just means that the emphasis falls on waiting. The passage is structured around this command to wait. When we do life together, when we pray with one another, uh, when we try to keep one another in the love of God, we do this so that we might be anchored in our true sense of time and place. And we have to contend for this more than any other aspect of the Christian life. I'm convinced of this. Because our culture says, the here and now is all there is, baby. You know, like all you can uh, see, that's all that there is. Just the material world. And guess what? Your time, it's running out. Your place is temporary. So you better make the best use for it and live for yourself. But as we wait for Jesus to return, to lead us to eternal life, it gives us a different sense of time and place. Our time, it's, it's not our own. It's Christ's. It's not running out. It's eternal. And our place isn't here and now. This is our temporary home. We're waiting for our true home. We're exiles in this place. But Jude specifically says, we're waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. A biblical scholar, uh, Dr. Ann Reese, defines mercy this way, and I really like it. Mercy is that which meets people at their point of need. We need Jesus to meet us with mercy. Why? Because we don't pray as we ought to pray. We don't love one another as we ought to love one another. We don't in and of ourselves have eternal life. And if we're going to make it at all, if we're going to survive in the midst of the pressures we face that push down against our faith, it won't happen without Christ having mercy on us. Because Jesus is our greatest point of need. And so the life of the beloved with the beloved looks something like this. We pray in the spirit to deepen our experience of God's love. We love one another as Jesus has loved us in an attempt to keep each other in the love of God. And we do all these things while being anchored in our true sense of time and place, waiting for Jesus to return with mercy, bringing us eternal life. But life of the beloved isn't just life with the beloved. Building up our faith isn't just for our own community, but I understand it is tempting to do this. It's tempting to wall ourselves off from the world and just focus on our community and, and have no relationships outside of this community because it's, it's easier and it, it just makes you feel safer and like your faith might survive better in here and there's some truth to that. But we're not meant to live like that. If we do this, it's actually a sign that our faith is immature and truncated because again, our faith it's personal, but it's never private. And the church, it doesn't exist just for itself, but for God's purposes within the world. We live as the beloved then, also 
for the sake of others. Which is why Jude shifts in verses 22 through 23. The first three commands are fundamentally about how the beloved relate to one another, but the next three commands are about how the beloved relate to others. Because a healthy faith, as it matures, is built up for the sake of being a witness and light in other people's lives. Jude writes, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. The first thing Jude says is that we should have mercy on those who doubt. It could also read, have mercy on those who are divided. Here Jude is speaking about the group of people who are torn between the teachings of the, apostle, uh, the apostles and the teachings of the ungodly. They're not sure which to believe. They're torn between two realities, and so they're doubting. They're going back and forth. And Jude says, for these people within your community who are struggling with their faith, you respond with mercy. You see, the Christian community is supposed to be a place where we can struggle, where we don't have all the answers, where we can say to one another, I'm, I'm wrestling here. That the community also needs to meet people in this point of need with mercy. And what does this, this group of people need? They need the foundation of our faith. They need the truth of Jesus. But they need to experience that with mercy. Which means you don't always just tell people the right answer or proof text them you know, some scriptures as a band-aid. It might mean you actually sit down and listen and hear them out hear the weight of their struggles, cry with them, pray with them but not preach while you're praying, and give them space and all the time they need to wrestle alongside with us, to wrestle with the truths that maybe you don't wrestle with but the truths they're wrestling with. And we're called to respond to that with mercy. And so if I just described you, if this is your reality right now, please know, you're welcome here. You're welcome in all of your struggle. And I'd encourage you um, to chat with maybe someone you came with. And if you don't know anyone, come talk to one of the pastoral staff. We would love uh, to hear how we can support you. Then Jude takes a turn for the intense. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Last week, we spent an entire sermon talking about the ways of the ungodly and their ultimate end, eternal separation from God, left in their self-destructive patterns, in the gloom of utter darkness forever. But there is never room for us to give up on anybody, no matter how far gone they may seem, because you have never locked eyes with someone that God does not love. And Jude says our hope should be to save them. Now, don't get caught up on the language. I know none of us can save anyone. Only Christ can save. But what Jude is saying is that we play a role in the proclamation of salvation. We play a role in sharing the gospel with people. And so as we grow in our experience of God's love, we should also then grow in our love for others because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. As you mature in your faith, you will start to be burdened with a desire to see others know and encounter the profound love of God displayed in Jesus' death and resurrection. 
And as we mature in our faith, it also means we have to own difficult aspects of our faith like last week's message. That there are very real eternal realities. A friend of mine, he's an atheist, he said this to me. If you believe in hell, however you might define that, how much do you have to hate someone to not share the gospel with them? He's absolutely right. The only compassionate and loving and merciful response to people that do not know Jesus is to share the profound message of the gospel with them. We do that with, tra- uh, with, <laughs> with tracks, not with tracks. You can use tracks if you want. We do that with tact. <laughs> and mercy. But you can do it with tracks and mercy too. But we share the gospel nonetheless. Oh, dear. (laughs) Lastly, uh, Jude says in verse 23, to to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. On this point, commentators agree, uh, Jude has the, the, the key group of the ungodly in mind. The people who have rejected Jesus as Lord and Master, who intentionally distort the message of the gospel, who distort grace, um, and who live fundamentally for themselves and influence others to live this way. This is who Jude has in mind. And he says, show mercy with fear while hating the garments stained by the flesh. It's a little strange. How do you show mercy while at the same time hating something? First, the garment stained by the flesh, this is just Jude's way of saying the things that they're doing. The broken patterns that they go back to over and over in their lives. The destruction that happens relationally, the destruction that's happening in their own souls. Hate that, Jude says. I think many of us get this. Whether you're a Christian or not, uh, you know what it is to have a friend or a family member who's doing things that you just can't approve of. Because you can see where it's leading and you can see what it's doing to their life and you hate it. And yet you love them. It's the old adage. Love the sinner, hate the sin. sin. But please don't ever say that to someone. Uh, Because Jude doesn't say, quote, platitudes. He says, respond with, with mercy, with fear. Show them mercy with fear. The mercy we show to those who are intentionally abandoning the gospel or distorting the gospel or rejecting the gospel needs to be tempered by the fear of God. In other words, how we respond has to be driven by uh, God's desires and our relationship with God and not our desire to please or to soften or to be nice. Because real mercy doesn't just gloss over serious issues. Sometimes mercy with fear will lead us to actually challenge someone and to say, I see this in your life. I'm not trying to stand above you. I'm concerned. And here's why. Sometimes it'll lead us to actually just meet with someone and listen and try to understand what's going on in their lives. And more often than not, sometimes it means biting your tongue and saying nothing at all and committing to pray for that person fearing the eternal trajectory that they may be on, but praying relentlessly for God to show mercy upon them and to lead them to his great grace. But when Jude says, hating the garment stained by the flesh, I think there's more to it 
still. I think he's actually saying, hate what the garment signifies. Well, what does it signify? It's the absence of Christ. As the beloved, our entire lives are supposed to be defined by our life with Jesus. We're supposed to be so captivated and fixated uh, by Christ that we loathe his absence. We should be so caught up in his beauty and his glory that we hate it when we see him absent in the world or in our own lives or in other people's lives. Because what we want to see is his love revealed within ourselves, revealed within our community, revealed within our city, revealed within people's lives who desperately need to encounter his grace. You see, As the beloved, life happens with the beloved for the sake of others, but it's all just a reflection of our life with Christ. All of Jude's instructions here lead us directly to Jesus. Jesus is the one interceding for us and praying for us at the right hand of God. Jesus is the one who died for us so that we might be saved and brought permanently into the eternal love of God. Jesus is the one who shows us mercy that leads to eternal life. Jesus is the one over and over in the gospel who shows mercy to those who are of two minds and who doubt. Jesus is the one who can save and snatch us from the fire. Jesus is the one who shows us what true, uncompromised mercy looks like. And as we're going to see next week, our ability to contend for our faith depends solely upon Jesus. Yes, we have a part to play. We participate. We we take actions and we contend for spaces and practices that helps our faith grow. And as our faith matures, uh, our eyes uh, and our hearts, they beat for the sake of others too. But we do all of this in light of our life with Christ, the one who contends for us.